Good morning. Our first reading today is from Exodus chapter 12, verses 31 to 42. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds, with the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt. And they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast, because they had been driven out of Egypt, and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt, because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honour the Lord for the generations to come. Our second reading is from Galatians, chapter 3, verse 15 to chapter 4, verse 7. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why, then, was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. 
For all of you were baptised into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Thanks uh, for leading us in prayer as well, Danny. Excuse me. <coughs> I do consider it a very great privilege to um, be able to come up here and share God's word with you week in, week out. I consider it a very great privilege to be um, able to not only be a member of the church family here, but to share special celebrations like we did at 8 o'clock, where our dear sister Afia, um, who is about to reach her 100th milestone of years on the planet uh, gave us the opportunity to celebrate in anticipation and uh, we got a very big cake a cake that said happy 100th birthday Afia and a cake that was designed to feed 100 and I think it was the biggest cake I've ever seen but we got to celebrate those wonderful that moment that special moment she'd received a letter from the, his Majesty the King and he uh, received a letter from the Governor General and received a card from uh, the Prime Minister and our dear sister said well what counts is I know the King of Kings it's his family business as a minister in the Christian faith um, we're in the business of uh, what sometimes referred to I kind of like it don't like it hatch match and dispatch or water, weddings, and wills. You know what I'm talking about. You know, the key moments in our family life, uh, baptisms and marriages, but also funerals. And um, today we're going to look at this Galatians passage under that title, Hatch, Match, and Dispatch, although when you look at it, it's actually the other way around. It's Dispatch, Match, and Hatch. And so that's the, um, the structure for today, three headings. The first one, a last will and testament. Uh, the second one, a marvelous marriage. And the third one, adopted as God's children. And um, you remember, of course, in context, this is the letter to the Galatians, and we're in the middle section. In fact, this is talk number five of nine, right in the middle here of that section, remembering one gospel of a crucified Messiah creates a new multi-ethnic family transformed by the Spirit of God. That's where we're going across this letter. And the big idea uh, for the whole series is one gospel for freedom forever. Let me lead us in prayer. Father God, as we come to your word, which is living and active and transforming our lives and the lives of many, 
across space and time, such as they are, we thank you for the privilege of being in your presence. We pray that your spirit would be pleased to teach us, as yet our souls cling to the dust, knowing that in Jesus, the resurrected King, we have a hope and an inheritance that will endure forever. Shape our minds, Father. Shape our hearts, Father. Shape your family for your glory, we pray. Amen. So, first thought for today, dispatch a last will and testament. Um, Sarah and I updated our wills before we went to Rwanda last month. Um, we updated our wills because the reality is that when you both get on the same plane together and you've got teenage kids, the, the unthinkable could happen. Like if the plane had dropped out of the sky, we needed to make sure that we had good guardians and good guarantors for our estate. And while I'm on that, can I just encourage us all to take that seriously? I think it is a goodly practice, a godly practice, in fact, to have our last will and testaments in good order in the event that the unexpected happens. But when you make your last will and testament, um, you can add on bits while you're still alive, you know? You can add what's called a codicil. Um, actually, we didn't do that. We just we did that five years ago when we went away together and then we just scrapped it and started again this time because things had changed. But, um, but once you're dead, that's it. There's no more revisions. Your last will and testament, that's your final say on the matter. Although, of course, some people may contest it. Once you're gone, you're done. And this is what Paul picks up on an everyday life illustration. He says, verse 15, brothers and sisters, let me give you this example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, read will or testament, that has been duly established, finalized, so it is in this case. Remember the case that he's talking about? He's talking about the covenant that God has established. In fact, what he takes here is uh, an example of something called argumentum a fortiori, which basically means if the everyday one works, think how much more the big picture one works, from the lesser argument to the greater argument, from a human covenant that is frail and subject to brokenness to God's covenant, which is perfect and will be fulfilled. And he says, look, if we can do it in our wills and testaments, how much more can God keep his promise? And the promise was fulfilled we read in verse 16, in one person. He talks about this covenant that God has set up, and he says the promise, the promises that were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, note he says, Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed. And isn't it lovely that Paul explains the Old Testament in Genesis for us, so that we don't have to be guessing about who it relates to, he says, this means one person who is Christ. He's saying that this is Yeshua Messiah, the expected one for the Jew. He is saying that this is Jesus Christ, the only one for the Gentile. Jesus is the seed. The promise you will remember God made to Abraham that there would be land and nations and blessing is fulfilled in Jesus. And that promise, that covenant that God made, the promise was received by Abraham, the great forefather, by faith. And it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Notice for the promise, Abraham didn't work for it. Abraham didn't contribute to it. He just had to receive it as God's gift, as God's grace. And notice as well that there wasn't anything special about Abraham. In some ways, he was just a doddery old dude. But God loved him. God set his affection upon him. And God will be committed to his promise. Just as we, when we receive a will or testament from a beloved one who is gone, want to be very careful to execute that will as a guardian or as a guarantor, exactly in line with their desire, God's heart for his people is to give them exactly what he promised, and that is an inheritance of eternal proportions. That is according to his promise to Abraham through his descendant, Jesus, life and life eternal. That is the promise on offer, brothers and sisters, friends. Eternal life. And Paul's at pains in 17 to 18 to remind them that the law, the good law, does not cancel the promise, the greater promise. Um, when you were little, when you were younger, do you remember how you used to um, always swap with other kids when you had things like um, football cards? Do you ever have football cards? Ever have marbles? You used to do swapsies. Kids today, Pokemon cards. Well, most of the, I don't know, some of the kids today, right? These days, there's a lot of stuff going online. I don't know if there's an equivalent, but we had a policy as kids, and it was this. Once you give, you can't take back. Remember? It was a gift. A gift was always free. Once it had been given, it was given. You couldn't make a payment for it. No wage was demanded. You work for wages. You exchange goods. But a gift is a gift. A promise is a promise. And Paul has this in mind when he says in verse 17, what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not revoke the promise, the covenant previously established by God. It doesn't revoke, it doesn't cancel the promise. God stands by his word because it is a gift. In fact, he goes on to contrast it and say, verse 18, for if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. If, if somehow the law was a means to get the inheritance, to earn the inheritance, then the promise would be invalidated. But that's not the case, he says, because God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. God's gift, historically to the Jews, was a promise to their father Abraham to have a home, the blessing of a home with God, but also that they might be able to share that home and blessing with the Gentiles, a home to be shared. And you know, God never left his people, even though they did have it tough at times. He was utterly faithful, faithful indeed, right up until the point where he came into the world in his person of his son and lived a life in accordance with the law perfectly and then went to the cross for the sins of others, yours and mine, and was vindicated in his resurrection and ascended, taking humanity into heaven and is now ruling on high. And so this are the threads of our next thought, which is the match, the marvelous marriage. Marriage, marriage, marriage. Marriage is marvelous. It's not perfect, but it is marvelous. Good marriage. We love a good marriage, don't we? The Joneses got married last year. Earlier this year, the Murphys got married. 
Coming up this year, we've got the Foreman-Winch marriage and the Smith-Cross marriage. You might know of other marriages. I wonder if you know that you're in a marriage too. Yes, you are. You're part of the bride. Your destiny is to be in God's eternal family. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you are engaged right now, betrothed to the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And and this picture of marriage is evident all the way back even in our reading in Exodus. How so? Well, that reading described for us how God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. Do you remember the story of how Israel, they were slaves, captives in Egypt, and Pharaoh would not let them go. And through Moses, God sent plague upon plague until finally the last plague was the death to all firstborns in Egypt. And God commanded Israel to cover their posts with the blood of a lamb. Why? Because this angel of death would take the firstborn of every family unless there was an unblemished substitute, the lamb whose blood was on the doorpost, the angel would see, and the houses of Israel would be covered and their firstborns would be protected from death as a sign looking forward to another lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then God rescued his people from the Red Sea into freedom from their slavery, the Redeemer of Israel. And he was the one who redeemed them from slavery. And he said, I'm entering into a covenant with you, my people. It was just like a marriage covenant. In fact, you know the book of Ruth? All about a marriage covenant between a kinsman redeemer and, and a, well, as it turns out, a Gentile woman and a Jewish redeemer. But a, but a picture, too, of, of, of a marriage where there's a very different party involved and something of the picture of God and his people bringing Israel together. And then he says, when you're in, when you're in my covenant, I'm going to let you know what it means to have me live with you as a perfect and holy God. And you remember how he gave the law at Mount Sinai and God made them holy and set them apart for himself and said, this is my law, that it may go well with you. And in fact, this week, our Jewish friends and neighbors are celebrating the feast of Shavuot, which is the feast of what's literally sevens, because it was seven weeks after that very first Passover. And it's, uh, it's the time of a harvest. And in fact, those amongst us who are a little more astute as to the calendar today will know that today is Pentecost Sunday, which means 50 days, which is 50 days from Passover. And very cleverly, as we'll see in a moment, these things come together through the person of the Lord Jesus. But, but just for now, just for now, let's hold that thought, Shavuot and Pentecost and um, this idea of marriage, because I just want to take us on a little, little journey. We're going to go back to the text, but before we do, I just want to say one thing. Uh, There's this little turn of phrase that my parents used to have. I don't hear it often these days, but it was this. It was going to go like this. God forbid. God forbid. Um, Let me just give you an illustration of God forbid. I was out with my daughter yesterday, and we were going to get something for her, and I stopped at the shoe shop to look in the window, and I saw this. And I thought to myself, yes, there's a decent pair of shoes. Doc Martens, as they should be. Somewhere up the ankle, good quality pair of shoes, very expensive these days, but my word, they're good. I said to myself, yes, and then I saw this, and I said, God forbid. <laughs> I mean, that's just wrong, isn't it? What is that? That's Doc Martin crossed with a, a sandal. <laughs> I said, Megonato, which is the Greek for God forbid. May it never be, no. <laughs> Some things that are just not meant to be. 
See, a marriage without love, God forbid. Or a law without a promise, God forbid. The promise has a purpose, the law has a purpose, and so Paul asks a rhetorical question, which takes us into considering the purpose of the law. Firstly, law as measure. He says, why then was the law given at all? He said it was given as, well, because of transgressions. Because nobody can keep the plumb line of the law. You know what a plumb line is? It's used for measuring. And it's dead straight, isn't it? They use lasers these days. But it used to be a weight on a piece of string. You know what, it, you know what crooked was, because you compare it, pair it to the plumb line. And the, and the law is there to say, human beings, your lives are crooked. You're not capable of living according to the plumb line, but you're going to wait for the seed to whom the promise referred has come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. When you had that read for you, that second half of 19 and 20, did you switch off a bit? Or did a question mark just appear in your head? I think it's like really coherent until that point. I go, what were you talking about, Paul? I found this quite confusing. Actually, lots and lots of ink has been spilled on these verses. It's one of, I think, probably the hardest verses in the whole of the letter. I think what it means is that the mediator is likely Moses. And Moses kind of was the guy to whom God gave the law. But I think when it's saying God is one, just have a look with me again. The law is given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Who's the one who made the deal with the promise? Do you remember back with the vows? God took on one vow, and then who did the other vow? Was it Abraham? No. It was God, wasn't it? God looked after both sides of the deal because God is one. He said, you can't look after the promise, so I've got the promise for you. When it comes to the law, you can't look after the law. So what's the purpose of the law? Well, it's a measure. It basically says to us, we can't keep the law. You're going to keep getting it wrong. But it's the law, verse 21, therefore opposed to the promises of God. God forbid. Because the law that had been given could impart life. Could it? No. If the law that had been given could impart life, then, there, then righteousness would have come by the law. So there would be no consistency with the promise. The law is not just the measure telling us that we can't keep it, but also it is looking forward to the one who could keep the promise. Scripture verse 22 shows us that all have sinned. Sorry, we're coming on. Thank you. All have sinned, verse 22. Scripture's locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ or perhaps the faith of Jesus Christ might also be given to those who believed. It simply reminds us that there's not one of us who's good enough for God. Do you think you are good enough for God? Paul says no. We're under the control of sin. Jew or Gentile under the control of sin. What does that look like for the Jew? Well, it looked like they were locked up in slavery to the works of law to be made right with God. Separated from the Gentiles as filthy dogs, a diminished desire to share God with the Gentiles in order to fulfill their God-given vocation to commend their gracious God to the nations. 
What was it like for the Gentiles in that day? Well, they were locked up in slavery to man-made gods, and they were working to appease these man-made gods, and they slipped into idolatry and immorality, and the danger for God's precious people is that they kept being drawn to the practices of the nations, and they were leading God's people away and never had a heart to pursue the true and living God. And so we think Jews and Gentiles then, but what does that mean for us today? Well, it's exactly the same, isn't it? We're constantly looking for laws. We're constantly looking to do the right thing, to make us right with God, or to fill the gap. Or we are on the other side, and we, we, we tend towards license, and just think, it's okay, I can do what I like. I don't have to listen to the Word of God. So the, the law as a measure makes it impossible for us to measure up to, but, but we can look in hope to the one who would fulfill the promise of God. And here the law also operates as a mentor. If on the one hand it's a measure of failure, on the other hand, it gets the people of God looking forward to the faithfulness, verse 23, of Jesus who would come. See, a coin, of course, has two faces, doesn't it? Do you remember coins? Used to keep them in our pockets. <laughs> I don't hear as much jingling as I used to. Actually, I found some coins the other day, and I was taken aback. I was like, oh, yes. And you remember how coins on one side they have tails, and on the other side they have heads? One, one takes us one way, one takes us the other. Likewise, the law. The law has two sides. On the one hand, it says tails. Here's a measure of your failure. But on the other hand, it says mentor. This word will look after you and point you to the one who can fulfill the law. Before the faithfulness of Jesus came, verse 23, we Jews were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that would come to be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. It's not like a strict disciplinarian. I don't want you to think of like trunch bowl or a, a matron or, or, or that, you know, the sort of old schoolmaster who was a little bit too eager with the cane. Think rather of a dedicated bodyguard or a doting nanny. Think gracious guardian for the Jews because the law was God's promises preserved to enable his people to keep faith in him. The Pythagogos, that word for guardian, was literally the slave who would look after the child as they went to school and then came back again. Took care of them in the hope that they would eventually make it and come back to until Christ we could be justified by faith. You see, the law... Measure and mentor is fulfilled in Messiah. And today is Pentecost Sunday. And something wonderful happened at Pentecost. Do you remember in Acts 2? There's this extraordinary moment when according to the promise of Jesus, the Spirit of God came upon his people. If Passover was the engagement between God and Israel, then Pentecost was moving closer to marriage. God brings them out of slavery into freedom to be his beloved bride, and he promises that there will be a time where he will dwell with them. And on that day in Acts, according to the promise of Joel, where his Spirit will be poured out, finally, God's people had the Spirit come upon them in a way that he had never done before. It was only possible because Jesus had gone to the cross and dealt with sin. He'd been raised from the dead and was risen and he ascended so that that good gift could come from heaven. And he says, says Paul, sorry, 25, now that this faith has come, we Jews are no longer under the guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you all, Jew and Gentile, are children of God through faith. 
For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ-like clothing. Pentecost Sunday has historically within the church family also been known as Whit Sunday. Have you heard of that? Whit Sunday is short for White Sunday. And White Sunday was the day on which they used to do all the baptisms. When people had come to faith in Jesus, they would acknowledge that the Spirit of God had come to dwell in them. And so a symbolic thing that would be done would be to dress in white clothing to represent the cleansing blood of Jesus, taking sins away, and the new person who stood before you in the name of Jesus. And so as he says, you've been baptized into Christ by the power of the Spirit, so continue to put on Christ like clean white clothing. From the day that you would turn from your sins and turn publicly to Christ on the day of baptism, or these days confirmation, it was a day to remind us that there was one gospel that had been given both for Jew and Gentile in this covenant promise, and now by the power of the Spirit, God's people were enabled to declare just who Jesus was. And so now, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean to say those differences disappear. <laughs> There's still Jews and Gentiles. There's still males and females. There's still some of us who are working for our wages and others who've retired. Some of us never had to work a day of our lives. What lucky free people we are. And what a lovely raspberry that was in a timely way. <laughs> But the reality of being one in Christ Jesus is that any barriers that existed previously have gone. There are no barriers. We are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs to the promise. And so what does that promise mean? Thirdly and finally, <clears throat> and very quickly, although I'm gonna slow us down at the end, we've been adopted as God's children. You've heard it said that this is National Reconciliation Week, but there is a far deeper reconciliation available to every single human being, whoever would believe it. The possibility's been opened up by the way, uh, uh, by the way in which Jesus fulfills God's promise. Jesus never canceled the law of God. He fulfilled the law of God and did it perfectly. And so as we consider what it means to be adopted as sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, I'm just gonna give us a really brief summary of these verses in chapter four in the words of another commentator. We're gonna look at this again next week, but it's kind of the bridge between the two chapters, and I want us to just spend a bit of time reflecting on, on this. This is from um, a paper by Don Robertson. He was the uh, former bishop in the diocese here. And he writes in this paper, the distinction between Jewish and Gentile believers in Galatians, this. And essentially, he's, um, he's summarizing the words of Paul in verses 1 to 7. He says this, and I quote, it's on screen. The status of you Gentiles as sons of God rests through your faith in Christ on the Abrahamic promise. But all of us, we Jews, no less than you Gentiles, were in a kind of slavery prior to coming to Christ. All of us were in slavery to the rudiments of the world. 
For us Jews, this was seen in our being under the law. For you Gentiles, it was your slavery to your false gods. Now we Jews were redeemed from our bondage by Christ, and as a consequence, all of us were able to enjoy acceptance as sons of God. You may be a son or a daughter of God the Father through Jesus. You see, we talk a lot, I think, about reconciliation between people horizontally. So-and-so needs to be reconciled with so-and-so. The most important reconciliation in the human life, the deepest need of every single human being is to be reconciled with God. During our lifetime, we looked at this passage in the light of wonderful milestones in our life together, hatch, match, and dispatch. But Jesus says that life goes on. After the births and the marriages and even the deaths, life goes on. And so there is a day coming when there will be a final and everlasting marriage for Jesus the bridegroom when he comes to take his bride, and that's you and me if we are his. And he will redeem under his one gospel and take us from earth and those in heaven into a new creation to be with him forever. And my my focus for us now is I want to commit us to being reconciled with God before we consider reconciliation with one another. Because there are some amongst us who are not yet reconciled with God. There are some of us who are still striving to make things right with God when what he has said is trust in my son. Paul writes in this letter to the Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And I want to say to those of us, just stop trying and come to the foot of the cross and lay it all before him. And I know that there are some of us who have been walking with the Lord, but we've just never felt fully in the family We've always felt that there's some kind of matron trunch bowl watching us or some kind of schoolmaster with a cane saying, you're just not quite in yet. And the Word of God tells us this simply isn't true. You're loved, and He wants you, and He wants you to stop trying so hard to be right with Him because you're in the family. You can't be kicked out of the family. You're either in or you're out. If you're in, you're in because of what Jesus has done. So I'm going to give us time just to surrender ourselves afresh to him, if that's you. And there's others amongst us for whom this is just a great reminder of God's grace. We might just let that wash over us in these moments and give thanks to God. But it might also be an opportunity for some of us to consider what that sort of transformation means in our daily lives. See, we talk about this week of reconciliation, but this week, I don't know whether you know, is also a week on which to celebrate some other significant birthdays. This was the week in which Augustine of Hippo, the first Archbishop of Canterbury, came to the, uh, was born into the world, and, and, and um, uh, it's also the week in which um, John Calvin, the great reformer, came into the world, and it's also the week in which uh, uh, John and Charles Wesley came into the world in different years. And each of those people spent many years desperately trying to make themselves right with God until one day they understood that Jesus is the one who'd done it for them all. And you remember their names, right? 
They became prominent preachers of the one gospel. And I wonder whether for some of us it might be that as an adopted child of God, we just need to step up. Not because in some way that's going to right us with God, but because this is the season to get a new stride. And maybe that's your prayer in this time. So I'm going to give us a moment, quietly in the presence of the Lord, and then I'm going to lead us in prayer. Would you join me? Gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus into the world to live the perfect life that no one else could live so that we as your people might come to him and press into his grace and rest in assurance. Thank you, Father God, that the gospel of grace, the one gospel of grace is for your glory because it means that no one can boast in anything other or anyone other than you. And Lord God, we do acknowledge that you are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. And we thank you for sending Jesus into this world to lay down his life for us. We are sorry for our sins and repent of them and ask that afresh you would take us and use us this week for the ministry of reconciliation that enables us to shine the light of Christ in our lives, that others would see him in us for your glory. Thank you, Father God, that we are adopted into your family. Thank you, Father God, that we are members in a marriage that is greater than anything we could ever imagine. And we pray that you would take us and use us to love and serve you and all people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.